I'm going to pause for a moment. I'm looking around. Uh, there's one or two kids here that are a little bit on the young side. And so I want to say, uh, if I were going to give this message a rating, 20 years ago, I would have said PG-13. But here's the reality. Our seven and eight-year-olds are way more comfortable talking about things than 13-year-olds were 20 years ago. Um, so I'm going to talk about some stuff that may make you squirm. Um, and probably the older you are, the more you will squirm. Um, it's going to be okay. Um, and if anything, if you've listened to my messages for the past four weeks, this will be tame. So I just want to throw it out there because in my scripture reading, I'm going to read Acts chapter 15, uh, which is about a bunch of people getting together and having a church meeting, which might sound boring, but the reason they're having the meeting is that there's division in the church and they want to heal it. They want to see people love each other. They want to see a unified church across ethnic lines. And what they have is a divided church where people who were Jewish wanted to continue the customs of Judaism and wanted to force Gentiles or non-Jews to do the same things that they did in keeping the law. And so the church was divided on the basis of being a Jew or a Gentile. And in many ways, that completely undermined what Jesus did on the cross. Because Jesus died so that we would all be united together in one family. And if there is division, as people worship Christ, what it says is, Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus, plus you need to do the same things I do. And so the leadership of the church assembled and got together to try to understand, what do we do? How do we unite the church with this controversy? And this matters because in a few weeks, I'm going to be preaching through the book of 1 Timothy. And I want to introduce young Timothy to you. And in order to do that, you have to understand this controversy. The biggest reason I want you to know who Timothy is is I want you to understand his heart as a pastor. He's not a domineering, manipulative, controlling, egotistical man. He is a humble man who puts other people first. And so he is an example for all of us to follow. And I want you to know his heart so that as we read through the books addressed to him, we get a sense of how he would have heard these instructions. Maybe some of the struggles that he would have had as he tried to implement him. And I want you to trust him. To know that even as Paul is telling him to do difficult things, like rebuke those who are in error, that Timothy is not a power-hungry, angry man. Timothy is a man who is willing to put other people first, even when it cost him dearly. I want you to know that this young man loves the Lord, he loves people, and he loves the Word of God. So this morning, I'm going to show you Timothy and Paul, how they work together. I hope to show you Timothy and his mom and grandma, and Timothy and the church, but we'll see if we get there. If not, this may be the first time I end a service uh, when it's supposed to end. 
scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 15. If you've got a paper Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 11. Scripture says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Okay, so that's my big embarrassing kind of difficult topic. We need to talk about circumcision for a minute. Um, It's a strange custom in the ancient world. There are so many questions around it. I remember as, as young boys, you know, reading the Bible, hearing the Bible preached and taught, one of our big questions was, how would anybody even know? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But part of the issue that I want to stress here is that this is not a dirty, strange thing. If you look through the Old Testament, and understand when God gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham, I want you to think through it in these terms. This is a life-changing, life-defining moment where Abraham says, for the rest of my life and all of my future, we belong completely to God. Now, when you experience a life-changing moment like that, it is normal to have some sign or some symbol that is a reminder to you and a declaration to others that you are no longer the same. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example of the covenant of marriage. Different cultures do this differently, but most cultures have a way that you recognize a married person from a non-married person. In our culture, we wear rings. And that ring is a symbol of my promise to my wife to be a faithful husband to her until one of us dies. And her ring is a similar symbol. And our rings, they speak. They speak to us and they speak to others. So my ring says to me that my wife loves me and has promised to be with me. And my ring says to everyone else, I am not available. I have made a promise to someone else, and that promise is exclusive. It's a life-changing, life-defining covenant with a visible symbol. 
Now, other people do things, you know, maybe at the birth of a child. I, I know a guy who has his daughter's name tattooed on him. And it's a life-changing moment when you become a dad. In fact, the Old Testament says that God has our names inscribed on his hands. So it's not a strange thing that a father would want to do that for his children to say, I will always love you. I will always be your dad. I will be a faithful father to you. And so many people who have tattoos, they get them because they want to declare who they are in a visible image. And maybe you love tattoos, maybe you hate them, I don't know, that's, that's not the issue. The point is, it is a life-defining symbol of who you are. And that's what circumcision was in the Old Testament. Now, we might think of it as gross, but here's why I want to say to you it's not gross. Partly, God made our bodies. No part of us is disgusting or vile. God has made us. Paul says some parts of us have more honor and less honor. But all of us are made by God, and all of us are made to be holy, and no part of us is unholy. With the covenant of circumcision, Abraham is saying, I at the deepest, most private, intimate parts of my life, belong completely to God. I have no part of my heart or life that I have kept back from him. My most intimate, private part has been permanently marked by God. And not only that, the covenant was for his children. So as he had little boys born into his household, he circumcised them as well to say, we as a family are set apart from God. And their children and their children and their children's children for all generations are going to reap the benefits of God's promises to us. And God's promises to them were good. And so if you can appreciate the value of a public statement of who you are, and I'll talk about why it was kind of public in a minute, but if you can appreciate the value of a wedding ring, if you can appreciate the value of a visible tattoo that announces loudly who you are, then you can appreciate the life-defining moment of committing to the Lord who called Abraham, who rescued him, who saved him again and again, and who promised him a future, and who promised him lifelong blessings, and not only lifelong blessings for him, but blessings for the entire world. This is a great deal. And so Abraham does what God requires him to do. He permanently marks his body in a way that he would never forget. And all of his descendants, when they were obediently following the Lord, did the same thing. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Jesus comes, and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom at first, read through the gospels, at first, just to the Jewish people. In fact, when Gentiles come to him, sometimes he says things like, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and kind of says, you guys are still waiting. The gospel of the kingdom isn't preached globally yet. And yet, the intention to bless the world was always there. 
So when Jesus sends out his apostles at the end of the Gospels, he says, go into the world, not just to Israel, go into the world and preach the Gospel to every nation. And so the Gospel goes global, and they start preaching to people that do not know God. They worship other gods. They've not followed the law. They eat things that Jews were not allowed to eat. They were unclean in many ways by Jewish law. And what happens, and what we heard about Peter saying, is that when they believed in Jesus Christ, they were saved. They hadn't done anything else. They didn't do what Abraham did. All they did was believe the message. Jesus died for your sins. Your sins are paid for. God will forgive you. And when they believed, they were saved. No circumcision. And when the Jews heard this, they said, that's not right. That's not right. We all went through this. You need to do it as well. And partly, I believe, it was because they understood the value that Abraham understood. They didn't think of it as a bad legalistic thing. They thought of it as a way to be set apart forever in a good way. Sometimes people who, who are faithful Christians love to get very Christian tattoos. My, my brother has a giant red cross on his arm. It was kind of a joke in college. If, if, if you were a particular type of, of major, I don't want to pick on anybody, but <clears throat> if, if you were a youth men major, uh, you would get a Greek tattoo. It was just, you had to. I mean, you learned a language that no one else could read. It made you feel special and smart. And you'd be like, yeah, this is... So what, I, I knew a guy, uh, he's, he's, I'm not knocking anybody, but he had the word doulos, uh, uh, and it means servant or slave. And, and, and Paul refers to himself as a servant of the Lord. It's a good word. So he put it on his wrist so that no one could know what it said. And they said, hey, what's that tattoo? And then he was, oh, well, it's a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus. Um, and if you lived in the right area, so like Moody Bible Institute is downtown Chicago, and, and Moody students get kind of known by reputation. Usually it's a good thing. I got a couple of jobs because they're like, oh, a Moody student. Yeah, absolutely. They expect me to show up on time, work hard, and, and that was generally true of Moody students. But our tattoos were also known all around Chicago. So if, so if you saw someone with a Greek tattoo, you'd be like, absolutely not. I'll ask about anything else. I'm not asking about your tattoo because it was just an invitation to get preached at. Um, it's a goofy Christian culture thing. All I'm saying is, they understood, the Jews understood this sign and this symbol in a positive way. We're setting ourselves apart. This is a lifelong commitment to follow God. We are his, he is ours, we will be blessed. Why would you skip that as you try to be united to Christ? And so the leadership of the church gets together. Peter says things like, God knows their hearts, what's inside. He gave them the Holy Spirit. So why would we force them to try to keep the law when we ourselves couldn't keep it? Read through the Old Testament. Not only do you see beautiful stories of faith, you also see heart-wrenching, tragic stories of unfaithful people experiencing the judgment of God. And the Old Testament closes on a bunch of religious people that are good at observing temple law, but their hearts are cold and dead inside. And so in many ways, the Old Testament says the outward signs don't matter. What matters is the inward heart. And then Jesus comes. 
and he preaches a message of forgiveness of sins, and he preaches it broadly in Israel to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to religious people like Nicodemus. He preaches to everyone. And as people are forgiven and begin to follow Jesus, and then the message goes outside Israel to the Gentiles, this becomes an issue. Because the question is, do followers of Jesus need to be followers of the Old Testament law? And as you read through Acts chapter 15, the leadership of the church decides clearly, no, they don't. That although this sign and symbol was meaningful, and in some sense beautiful, if you can call it that, in the Old Testament, it is not a requirement for Christians. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, if you play this game where you think I have to do certain things in order to become a Christian, you are adding to the works of Christ. You are suggesting Jesus' death on the cross isn't enough because now you have to do Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus whatever, fill in the blank. And Paul says that's no gospel at all. That's not good news. That is a burden on top of people that should be saved by free grace. And so the entire New Testament takes this stand. You say, why are you talking about this so much before you introduce Timothy? Because Timothy does this absolutely insane thing, and this is how I want to introduce him to you. So the first time we see young Timothy is in the very next chapter. So if you have your Bibles open or use your phones or whatever, I want you to see this in Scripture. Go to Acts chapter 16. So this is right after the Jerusalem Council. Okay, And we're going to read a couple of verses. At the very least, I'm going to show you Paul's ministry with young Timothy, and this is where they meet. So the title of my message today is Timothy Saved and Serving in Grace. Saved and Serving in Grace. And to begin with, I'm going to read the first five verses of this passage. Paul says, excuse me, not Paul, it's verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, so did you catch what happened there? In Acts chapter 15, it says, don't worry about being circumcised, guys. It has nothing to do with salvation. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul takes this poor Greek kid and has him circumcised. What is the deal? Why, why would he have him do that? Well, the text tells you why. But I don't want to rush and just read a proof verse. I want you to think through the fact that this young man did something deeply personal and intimate in a way that forever changed his body permanently not to be closer to God. He understood there was no spiritual value in what he was doing whatsoever. 
he had a heart to remove any obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people he was trying to reach. Now, some of the practical questions, how do people know? Okay, so here's how one way people would know. It tells you in the text. They knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Culturally, circumcision was disgusting to Greeks, kind of like it is to Americans, and so at least we don't like to talk about it, right? Here's how they knew. Well, the Greeks, when they performed in athletics, they ran around naked. In fact, Christian culture to this day is kind of funny about how they talk about gymnasiums, because literally a gymnasium is where you run around naked. So a lot of churches have family life centers, and apparently, historically, there were even people in our church that had a hard time calling a gym a gym because of this. In, you know, 2,000 years ago, it was a bad place. Church culture is still goofy. Uh, here's how Greeks would know. You got naked a lot, whether you were at the baths or whether you were at the gym. And so there was a very public place. And Jews were ashamed of their bodies because they didn't fit in with the people around them. So it was not hard to figure out in a secular Greek setting because the Greeks were not embarrassed at all. Uh, and probably would have made us crazy uncomfortable, and probably should make us crazy uncomfortable. The Jews, on the other hand, would assume that if your dad was a Greek, you weren't. And for those who had become Jewish by following the law, they would have been circumcised by a rabbi that was well-known. It was almost like making an appointment at a doctor. So there's a public record. You don't, you don't go around and, and give evidence the rabbi knows, and if anybody questions, you send them to the rabbi. So it is an issue of public record, and notice what Timothy does. It says right in verse 3, the only reason he agrees to this is because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, you can look later in the book of Acts. In fact, maybe it would be worth our time later when Paul is arrested, it's because the Jews thought that he had brought a non-circumcised Jew into the temple. He hadn't done it. He was innocent of the charge, but they rioted because they believed that Paul had desecrated the temple. Now, this is a big deal. If he truly had desecrated the temple in the Old Testament, people probably would have died. But what they don't realize is that Jesus has died and the temple is no longer needed for true worship of God. Just like Jesus said to the woman at the well, the time is coming and now is when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth and the physical temple didn't matter anymore. But even though it didn't matter for genuine worshipers, Paul is enormously careful that he doesn't offend people who don't know Jesus yet. He puts non-believers' false beliefs ahead of the truth, not permanently, but so that he can preach the gospel and they will listen to him. Now you can read the entire book of Acts and find out how many times Paul made people really angry with the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't care about making people angry. He's not a coward. He's not afraid. But he doesn't want to needlessly make people angry, at least until they've heard the good news of Jesus. And if there is anything standing in the way of someone hearing the gospel, Paul wants to remove that obstacle so that 
they will listen to the message. And so Paul takes this young man, he recognizes, excuse me, <coughs> he recognizes that he is a faithful disciple. He's spoken of well by the people in his church. He recognizes, hey, the church needs more preachers and teachers. They're not going to grow to maturity unless they have the opportunity to experience ministry. So he wants to welcome this young man to give him experience in ministry, kind of like an internship. And in order to make sure that they don't have problems before they have the opportunity to preach, he doesn't care about problems after they have the opportunity to preach, but before they have the opportunity to preach, he asks him to do this thing that's utterly meaningless to true followers of God. Saints, do we have a heart like that? that that's sacrifice. That's, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to deny my personal preferences so that you will listen to the good news about Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about compromise in ways that are immoral. The scripture is very clear that God's moral law has not changed. We don't do sinful things in order to try to reach the lost. But what I am saying is there are lots of areas in life where we can remove barriers so that non-believers would be willing to hear the gospel. And that's what Paul and Timothy are willing to do. Are you willing to lay down your preferences and desires? Are you willing to think about other people so deeply that you will try to identify obstacles to the gospel and remove them before they're even a problem? Paul knew his audience. He knew this was going to be a problem. Do we know our audience here in Holly? Do we think through things like, you know what? We can't get people to listen to the message because X, Y, and Z. And do we try to get rid of X, Y, and Z? Are we trying to make sure? So let me give you one example. Most people who are non-religious even if they have some sort of history of faith of some kind or another, are very hesitant to come into a church building for lots of reasons. Some of them fair, some of them unfair. Are we willing to take the gospel to them? So, for example, when Paul and Timothy run around the ancient world, he starts by going to synagogues where Jewish people gathered. It's kind of like their Sunday service. They came together, they listened to the scriptures be read, they talked about the scriptures, they discipled each other, and very often, after a couple of weeks or sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, the synagogue would kick them out. So we don't agree with you, we don't like you, you're gone. And Paul would say, fine. And then he would go find a place where Gentiles typically gathered. So he didn't expect the Gentiles to start coming to the synagogue. They didn't have a campaign to say, all right, saints, we're going to try to get the Gentiles in synagogue. They went to where the Gentiles were. Now, he didn't abandon Christian worship for the sake of evangelism, but what he did was he made sure that he went to places where people were. So this summer, we hope to do a couple of outdoor services at Seven Lakes, not in an obnoxious way. We want to be there in a way that if you're just having a beach day and you just want to have your beach day, that's fine. But we want to have a small worship service on a Saturday night and just say, hey, we're going to have a couple little snacks. We're going to have a message of hope. We're going to sing some good songs. We want you to be part of it. Why? Because maybe there are people who will come to a church service on a beach, but they won't come to a church service on a Sunday morning. 
And that's one way that I think we've got to think through, okay, there's an obstacle in coming to a building. Sometimes there's, you know, there's an obstacle with your church name or whatever. Do we care about those things? Do we look at obstacles that keep people from worshiping Jesus and think, you know what, that person's soul matters more than this thing that may or may not have any value whatsoever? And Timothy gives us a huge example, something that's so deeply personal. Guys, we we take our personal looks, our bodies, very seriously. It's absolutely sacred to us, right? If you want me to cut my hair, if you want me to shave my beard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at you sideways and be like, I love my beard. I love having my beard. I'm not going to shave it for you. It's mine. But if I start thinking that maybe my beard is hindering my ministry, my beard is gone. It, it doesn't matter compared to what God has called us to do in winning souls for Christ. And that's all I'm saying is that we need to have the heart of Paul and Timothy to think through what keeps people from hearing the gospel. What can we do to help people hear this message that can save their eternal souls? So Paul did a couple of things. First, he helps this young man recognize, hey, we can have a more effective ministry if you're willing to do this thing. Don't misunderstand it. It's not drawing you closer to God. All you're doing is you're going to be a better preacher and teacher. There you go. Number two... Paul, as a long-term mentor to Timothy, in one place he calls him a son, even though he's not biologically his dad, he continues to pour in and encourage this young man. Now, Timothy knew a lot, and I'll talk about that in a minute. He had already been trained in the scriptures. He was already a faithful disciple in the church. But he needed reminders and encouragement and and almost like a coach that's going to get in your face and say, I know what you can do. You can do better. Now do it. Paul would come alongside at key moments in Timothy's life and encourage him to stand up and be strong. I'll give you one example. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do you notice his balance there? I have to believe that he's saying this with some strength. He's not saying, Timothy, if you get up in the morning and you have enough energy, I want you to do your very best to try to preach the word. He's not doing that. He is saying, remember, you live in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. He will know your heart, your energy levels, your ability. You will stand before God one day, Timothy, and I charge you to remember that and to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Out of season means you don't feel like it and you need to do it anyway. Paul is encouraging him with strong words. And then at the end, in case Timothy's like, absolutely, I'm going to do it. And he starts beating people up. He says this with complete patience and teaching. Recognize that life change takes time for most people. Don't be impatient with those who fail. Have complete patience. Remember, this is a work of God and a work of grace. So be patient but be faithful at the same time. 1 Timothy 4.14, he says, Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy 
when the council of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, you're a gifted young man. Use your gift. Don't be lazy. Be faithful in studying the scriptures so that when you preach, you are a good preacher. Gifting of God does not excuse you from hard work. Do not neglect the gift you have. So Paul does two things, and I, and I showed you this passage in Acts and a couple of passages from Timothy, because I want you to know that Paul comes alongside and lives life with Timothy. He lets Timothy watch him, and then he gives Timothy opportunities to practice preaching and teaching, and then he would have given him feedback saying, you know, man, that was awesome. Here's one thing maybe you could have done better. You've shared life experience, but he doesn't just give shared life experience. He faithfully, for decades, says hard things that Timothy needs to hear. So that's Timothy and Paul. The other two points are going to be quicker, so I'm going to go for them. Paul and Timothy began life after Timothy had been discipled by his mom and his grandma. Um, these references are going to be up on the screen. You can also see them in your bulletin. Uh, if you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to turn there. I think it's beneficial to see these words in Scripture. But I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Understanding that every Christian goes through periods of discouragement and doubt, and I think part of what's happening in Timothy's life is the difficulty of ministry has led him to a place where Paul, as a faithful mentor, has to come alongside and say, don't forget your past. Don't forget who you are. And that's what he does in these verses. 2 Timothy 1, 5-7, through he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. See how he's testifying to the faith that maybe Timothy is even wrestling with? He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The point I want you to see here is that Timothy benefited from the faith of his mom and his grandma even while his dad is referred to as a Greek. Now, probably that means that he wasn't a Christian at all. Very likely. Uh, for a number of reasons, I, I don't want to get into it, but partly because of the way Paul talks about him in Acts 16, and partly because of the fact that Timothy's dad is never mentioned as part of Timothy's spiritual formation. So a couple of things from that point. Uh, number one, moms, grandmas, and dads and grandpas, Let's be faithful from a young age to teach our kids the word. You know, we as the church can help. We can come alongside. We've got an Awana program where we want to help kids memorize verses. But that's an hour and a half a week. If you leave discipleship of your children to an hour and a half a week, or at most three hours if you want to include Sunday morning, the massive influence of non-believers in their life is going to cause them to drift away. You need to daily, faithfully pour into your kids' lives spiritually. Look at the verses that, that we're trying to help them learn and ask them questions about them. Make sure that you are active in their discipleship and recognize that even when your home life is less than perfect, God can bless and you can bear fruit in the lives of your kids. 
Notice 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 17. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. From childhood. And he clearly says that it's his grandma and his mom that helped pass this on to him. And so I want to encourage you. Number one, you can't pass on what you don't have. Be a faithful follower of Jesus yourself as a parent, as a mom or a dad, as a grandma, as a grandpa, and then bring your kids and your grandkids along with you. Pray with them every day. Discuss the sermon with them. Discuss the scriptures that they're memorizing. Ask them questions about what they think and what they believe. And don't freak out if it's wrong. Children are hilarious little heretics. They don't know any better. They don't know anything. So be patient and love talking with them. Learn together with them. They're going to ask you questions that you don't know the answer to. And that's okay. It's an amazing opportunity for you to grow with them. So recognize that this spiritual giant of Timothy was once a very little boy, and he would not have been the type of person that Paul would say, hey, I want you to come with me on this missionary journey if he was a hot mess because he never learned anything. Be faithful in raising your children and your grandchildren to know and love the Lord. They will look back on your example and be encouraged someday. Number three, talked a little bit about Paul and Timothy. Talked a little bit about Timothy, his mom and his grandma, and that sort of home formation that's apart from the church. Number three, there's Timothy and the church. So I want you to understand what happened in this young man's life when he was a mature adult, still young, but mature in the faith, and how Paul encouraged him to serve the church. So I'm going to read a couple of references here. This one's from 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Uh, By the way, Timothy appears all over the New Testament. Over half of Paul's letters mention him by name. Uh, The book of Hebrews at the end wants you to know that Timothy was released from prison, probably the same Timothy. So he did jail time with Paul. He would have been persecuted with Paul. He traveled many different churches. And then Paul eventually sets him loose. He wants him to be able to stand on his own, so he gives him space and distance so that he can succeed and fail and continue to grow and mature without living in the shadow of a super mature believer. And so this is what we find in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He's talking to the Corinthian church and he says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. That's a huge reference for so many reasons. Paul does not change how churches operate based on locations. He doesn't do that. He has one way of teaching. Timothy knows it because he's worked so closely with Paul. And as Paul is called away to different areas and he knows of a struggling church, he sends Timothy back and says, hey, you need to remember what Paul has taught all of us. Every church behaves this way. Your church can't be an exception here. And so Timothy's ministry is that of a faithful pastor. But don't forget his heart. Remember where we started this? He's a faithful pastor that puts the needs of his people before his own. In his most personal and intimate and deepest way, he 
wants nothing to get in the way of the gospel of Jesus. Later on, Paul is writing to Timothy at the end of 1 Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So Paul has put Timothy on kind of a long-term assignment in the church of Ephesus. I'm going to talk about Ephesus next week and, and what that church was like. And he writes 1 Timothy so that Timothy has a clear idea of how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice, there's one church. There's many locations, but there's one church. And Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy apply to the church no matter where it's located. And Paul gives Timothy these instructions so that he can continue in faithful ministry. 1 Timothy opens with these words. This is 1 Timothy 1.3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. His role as a pastor in the church was to correct people in error. And then a little bit further in 1 Timothy 1. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He talks about ministry as war, and it is, because there is an enemy of the church that hates her, that wants to see her fall and fail, and Timothy is to wage a kind of joyful, holy war where he is faithful to instruct people in the scriptures and faithful to encourage the church to live out the mission that they have received as followers of Jesus. Saints, you might be asking, okay, so what do we do with this? There's this little biographical sketch, this young pastor who is mentored, who becomes a faithful pastor. How does that apply to me? Well, there are a couple of things. Number one, I want to ask you, are there barriers that we need to remove so that people are able to hear the gospel and grow in the faith? Are there barriers that we need to remove so that people can hear the gospel and grow in the faith? Sometimes it's hard to become a part of a church, especially in a global pandemic. Okay, you're way less likely to get invited to somebody's house right now. But even before the global pandemic, if you've been friends with someone for 50 years, you're probably not going to invite a new person over to your house. And I don't know if that's healthy. Sometimes churches struggle to grow because they become inward-focused instead of outward-focused, and that barrier hinders the ministry of the church. So absolutely, celebrate the friends that you've been friends with for decades, but don't lose sight that our mission is to reach the lost and to disciple those who have become believers. And if you have no room in your life for people outside of your friend group, we've lost sight of who we are and what we're supposed to be as a church. So keep an eye out. I'm not saying, I don't know into your heart and into your life. I don't know if this is true of everybody, but I'm saying generally it can be true. It can be true of me. So examine your heart. Are you genuine in loving people that you don't know? One of the barriers to growth, I think, is sometimes we look at immature kids and we just assume there's no hope for them. But we fail to educate and disciple them. We fail to recognize good gifts that God has given them. 
And so, of course, they grow up and they don't become faithful leaders in the church because we haven't recognized the potential they had when they were young. Saints, let's not do that with the next generation. Let's be optimistic and hopeful about our kids, even when they're messy and and, and tough to deal with. Let's be faithful in training them. I want you to think through, you know, what keeps non-Christians you know from listening to the gospel? And now, I I don't know because I don't know the non-Christians that you know. There are some things that, that it's easy to talk about things like clothing and music styles, you know. Some people might say, man, I don't want to go to that church because I, I don't know if I have the right kind of clothes. I've got a friend, he's a pastor out in Byron. He's a great guy. Uh, he's actually been here once, super tall. He was talking to a man that he said, man, I, I don't want to come to church. He's like, why not? He said, well, I, I, I just, I live in sweatpants. I actually, I don't have anything other than sweatpants. And some of you would be like, all right, man, I'm going to go buy you a pair of pants not what he did. You know what he did? He said, you know what, buddy? Sunday, I will wear sweatpants. I'll wear them from the pulpit because I want you to come to my church. I want you to be comfortable as you are rather than saying, you know, we're just going to help you blend in and be like everybody else. That's not what you do with a non-believer. Paul and Timothy don't go around to the Jews arguing about how unnecessary circumcision is. They do go to churches and teach them that, but they don't talk to non-believers like that. They don't try to persuade non-believers that they have to be more like Christians before they get saved. And I think John's example is perfect. If somebody says, man, I can't go there because you know, I don't have nice clothes, don't offer to buy them better clothes. Say, you know what? I'll match your outfit. That's fine. Be willing to build that kind of bridge. And I was talking to a, a lady this, earlier this week, a, a young lady, that has some tattoos, and she was kind of apprehensive about that, as if that would somehow prevent her from being a part of a church. And I want to say, if you as church people, or if I as a church person, condemn someone because of how they look, whether it's a tattoo or any other thing, we are forgetting that we are called to serve the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There can be no barrier You can't judge someone on the basis of a tattoo or or on clothing styles or makeup or any of those things. You need to preach the gospel and make the church a place where people are comfortable no matter what they wear. But those are the easy things to talk about. What's harder is the, the people that you know who are closer to you that maybe you've hurt. Maybe you need to apologize to. Maybe the reason that they don't want to follow Jesus is because they know you. And so I want to give you three little barriers that I think sometimes hinder people from the gospel. And one of them is ignorance. Um, And I don't mean their ignorance, I mean our ignorance. Like sometimes we can't proclaim the gospel because we're not comfortable enough describing what it means to someone. So they don't know how to be saved because maybe you and I can't tell them in a clear way. Saints, let's remove that barrier. Let's learn how to present the gospel clearly so that as we have opportunities, we can invite people to believe and be saved. Let's be comfortable talking about baptism. Let's be comfortable talking about the scriptures. And if someone asks you a question and you can't answer it, it's okay to say, I don't know, but then find out. Learn how to find out. So friends, let's remove ignorance as a barrier to saving faith. Let's be ready to preach and proclaim the gospel. Sometimes sin is a barrier to saving faith. And again, I don't mean in the life of the unbeliever. Obviously, they don't know the Lord. But I mean in my life and in your life. 
Sometimes we need to confront our own sins and apologize to people we've hurt so that they're willing to listen to the gospel. You know, the best testimony to the power of Jesus to change life is your changed life. And so if people recognize, man, that person is willing to apologize. I don't know a lot of people who are willing to apologize in a general way. You know, like the, the secular apology is, I will try to do better. I, 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 you know, am ignorant and blah, 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 and I'm just going to try to do better. But the Christian apology says, I was wrong, I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. Not a cheap sort of, you have to forgive me, but an honest confession of, I hurt you and I was wrong. And maybe you don't even ask for forgiveness for that person. Because you're not trying to make yourself feel better, you're recognizing your sin. And so, saints, if there are things in your life that are preventing you from telling others about Jesus, deal with them. Confess them to God, and if you need to confess them to the people you've hurt, confess them to the people you've hurt. The last one I want to give you, and and there are others, but just busyness. Is there time in your life to build a relationship with your neighbor or the people you work with? Is there time in your life to share the gospel? Will you make time? Will you sacrifice some of your time so that when someone calls you, you take the call, or you have the meal, or you go get coffee, or you invite them over? Will you have the humility to say, you know what, my house is a mess, but you need to have this conversation now, so come on over anyway. Let's talk about Jesus. Friends, I don't know what the barrier might be, but let's learn from the heart of Timothy that says, you know what, even though Timothy had every right to say, We're telling the whole world that Christians don't need to do this. I don't need to do this. And Paul would have said, you're right. I'm sorry, I can't take you with me. And Timothy would have missed out on the blessings of ministry that he enjoyed for decades because he let his own rights and comfort get in the way of being a faithful minister. Let that not be true of us. Let us lay down our personal preferences and music styles and all kinds of things that keep people from Jesus and say the important thing is coming to Jesus. And then we're going to learn how to incorporate our musical tastes and preferences, all of them, to praise God. The last thing I want to talk about, talk about how do we apply this. Well, I think the biggest application comes there. Let's learn to lay down our own rights in the service of the gospel as a church. The last thing I want to mention, how do we form people like Timothy? How do we help people put the good news of Jesus first in their lives? And I think the answer is that is faithful teaching. And I'll be the first to admit it's hard. It's easy to begin on a plan. It is hard to follow through faithfully for years and years and years. You all know, if you've been a part of our church for a while, I love children's catechisms, whether it's New City Catechism or like the super old Keech's Catechism. There are great systems for teaching your kids truth. You know what? Isaac is still around question 40 or 50 because it's been hard to follow through. There's 150 questions. He's got stuff that I've never talked about with him. And Rosie's a little bit behind him and Jack is a little behind him. You know what I'm going to do? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I bought a chalk, well, Lauren helped me. I said, babe, I want a chalkboard right there in the kitchen. She bought one of those little rolls of sticky chalk paper and we put it up 
And I am trying my best to move forward in a plan that I believe is good, that blesses them, that helps us have conversations. Faithfulness is difficult. If you fail for a while, start over and be faithful in teaching your kids. Have a plan. We've got amazing children's Bibles. We've got amazing catechisms. We've got fantastic Bible storybooks. Use them. Read with your children. Pray with your children. Find great Christian music to have your kids growing up around songs of praise. Include these things in your home for the sake of your kids seven days a week. Because if you assume that your kids are going to know Jesus and love Jesus because you take them to church once a week, they might for a little while. And maybe they'll be saved, but they're not going to mature if they remain ignorant. And even if you fill their head, but you don't help disciple their heart, they're not going to mature spiritually. So let's be faithful seven days a week. And then secondly, let's be their biggest cheerleaders. Let's be their biggest encouragers. Don't teach them in a way that belittles them or becomes frustrated when they don't move as fast as we'd like, but encourage them. Recognize their gifts. Celebrate how God has made them with all of the beautiful, awesome things that he's done that are unique to them. Let's be faithful in being joyful in our homes so that our kids love church and don't resent it. And yes, There's going to come a time where there are going to be fights and arguments, and that's part of parenting, and that's part of life. Don't give up on the long game. Recognize the faithfulness of a mom and a grandma can pay off for decades so that 2,000 years later, the church is still blessed by the ministry of this young man who put other people first and followed the example of his mom and his grandma. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would first do this work in our hearts that we would love you so much that just like Jesus did not take his rights into account but laid them down even to death on a cross, and just like young Timothy did not take his rights into account but laid them down, do that work in us. Let us remember the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, and the resurrection power of Jesus in our hearts Father, if there's anyone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as Savior, I pray they would recognize this kind of love. They'd place their faith wholly in Christ and be saved. And God, I pray that you would bless parents and grandparents as part of our church, my home as well, that that you would help us to raise our kids to be little, little young Timothys, raise our daughters to be little girls that, that love Jesus, that lay down their own preferences and even rights in the service of Jesus and in the service of others. God, make this a church where we love people so radically and deeply that they are drawn to the heart of Jesus. Only you can do this, God, and I pray that you would. And I pray it in faith, trusting your goodness to do this among us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.